I think this is probably one of the remarkable things about Catherine of Catherine Macaulay, Catherine of Ireland, that like the earlier Vincent de Paul, who um, moved in very quickly in the middle of the 17th century to look at the uh, poverty uh, in in, uh, France and in Europe after the Thirty Years' War. Catherine, in the 19th century, realised that the problem was structural. Catherine Macaulay was born in 1778 into a Dublin of comfort and elegance, but from an early age she was aware of the darker side of life in the city. She must have been a very thoughtful uh, young woman, and she came from an educated background where her, um, the family that she grew up with, you know, were probably uh, in touch with the whole movement of the Irish Parliament uh, in those last years before it uh, went for a union with Westminster. And so the thoughtful Catherine, she would have been aware, I think, that um, the atmosphere of 18th century Dublin had changed with the um, escalation of population. Say, in 1700, I think there were some... It was a small city by European standards. But by 1803, a quarter of a million, many of them very, very poor at the base of that city, were scrambling for meals, for some kind of shanty homes. The sewage was bad. The um, Parliament had moved from 1801 to Westminster. And so Catherine, as... She moved into, you might say, her late 20s and right through her 30s, would have been aware of the problems that this society was experiencing. And so Catherine, I mean, this shows what an intelligent reader of her time she was. Catherine, with that extraordinary insight, which marked, you know, all her projects, began to realise that it would have to be in some way a group uh, work or some kind of collectivity of women who would set about in her case uh, she gradually became clear on her mission that it was about the not just the homeless and the uh, vagrants on the streets but it was actually a very much as it came into um, the 1830s about the uh, uneducated poor children of the city what was remarkable of course about Catherine was that while much of the reforming uh, institutional um, strategies of 19th century governmental policy were still punitive, as they had been in the 18th century, Catherine's were corrective. You know, and that is why she appeals across the centuries to us, that in letter after letter she kind of counsels the groups of what she was now calling her sisters, to honour mercy, justice and compassion. A key factor in Catherine's life was her very strong identity with her father. He died when she was very young, but it was he who first really introduced her into the ways of the Catholic faith and it was he who had the practice of feeding the poor. It was he who was very compassionate. Now, that influence on Catherine was profound within her. All of her life she really reverenced her father's memory and I think in some ways it became a really strong ideal for her. She was, you know, what we would call the father's daughter. Um, She was very at home in, in operating with men, you know, and she was doing things that 
she was criticised were male things. You know, only men manage a fortune. Only men sort out the plans for a house. Only men manage the finances for an establishment. That was some of the criticisms of her at the time, that she was doing what a man is supposed to do, and she wasn't to do it. But she had that intelligence, resourcefulness and competence to be able to do it, and she did have a confidence within herself. She knew she could do it, and she did. To feed the hungry, to be compassionate to those who were abandoned and ragged and all of that that drew on the compassion within her was very much imitation of her father, very much um, drawn on by the ideals of the father that she remembered with such love. She was certainly very hurt, very hurt by what some of the clergy did and their criticisms of her and the dispute about not providing a chaplain and so on for Baggett Street House that she had built. That was very hurtful for Catherine. But it was also part of her agenda in her life not to be bitter. She she had the struggle within her not to let herself get bitter. And part of that was, no, she didn't become really disillusioned. I think it's part of the 20th century that we've questioned the structure of patriarchy. And Catherine didn't. She lived within it. Um, but by the same token, she was very much able to not let any of the issues of authority or politics in the church deter her from what she saw as central importance and to her the spiritual life the inner journey and being compassionate for the poor they were the central things and nothing deterred Catherine from those she was yes shocked when she got the criticism and she was also sort of in the sense she had there was no model for her to follow he was a group of women wanting to live together live a prayer life in common and work for the poor. The only model there was for that was one of religious life. So Archbishop Daniel Murray came along and said, really, Miss Macaulay, I didn't know you intended to set up a religious order. Now, it nearly knocked her over when he said that because she had no intention of setting up a religious order, none at all. In fact, the idea at that stage was quite abhorrent to her. But it's it's though... She'd fallen into that model because there was no other. And like all great stories where the person is in a great dilemma, she had the sense of, I can find a way through this. You know, there's a way through. There's a way of making Rome and Archbishop Daniel Murray happy. And there's also a way of being consistent with her vision of helping the poor. a lot of poverty and want in the Charleville area and they found life very hard in the beginning and they were wondering whether they would stay or not and they were very few in number and they were trying to come to some decision about staying on or else going back to Baggett Street and they got their answer one day from a poor woman as they were out on the visitation she said May God Almighty be praised and blessed. Sure it was he himself who drove ye in among us. Uh, the sisters uh, in Castleton Bear seemed to read the signs of the times and be very much a part of the area from the very beginning. Uh, they even saw the need 
for some of the poorer fishermen to have better nets and some kind donors gave them money which they donated uh, that um, nets could be bought for the poor fishermen and um, they also uh, got seed potatoes and distributed them among the poor people at the hinterland. Catherine in Bag Street found that the health of the sisters was deteriorating rapidly there and even to the point where the doctors ordered a change of air for many of the sisters. Eventually, a place was found in Sussex Place in uh, Dunlaire, opposite the Catholic Church there. The first work that Catherine intended uh, having there was the visitation of the sick, but after a while she noticed so many girls on the streets, idle, running around with nothing to do, that she opened a school for them there. The Mercies came to Burr because um, in 1840 there was a curate in Burr called Father Cratty and uh, he was at loggerheads with his bishop um, over a change, a proposed change to another parish and he led a lot of the um, parishioners into schism and at that time the uh, Apostle of Temperance, Father Matthew, was giving a retreat in Burr and he advised Father Spain, the parish priest, to invite the Mercy Sisters to Burr. In 1838, the Mercy Sisters came to Limerick for the first time, actually on Mercy Day, 24th of September. Helena Heffernan, a County Limerick woman from Arda in County Limerick, was a very well-off woman. And she felt that the Mercy Sisters would meet the needs of the poverty-stricken Limerick of that time and she promised to support them financially. So she went to the then Bishop of Limerick, Bishop Ryan, asking him to invite the Mercy Sisters to Limerick. Men involved in the distilling in Tullamore uh, had easy access to drink. And I think there was a lot of drinking and a lot of alcoholism. And I do think that there was great distress and poverty suffered by the women and children as a result of that. And uh, uh, around that time, or around maybe the late uh, 1830s, early 40s, there was a lady in Tullamore called Miss Pentony. And she was concerned about the women and the children in Tullamore. And uh, she and a small group of uh, ladies started working with the women and children. And around the same time, she heard about what the Mercy Sisters were doing in Dublin. So she uh, inquired about their work and she seemed to be concerned uh, so much about Tullamore that she'd like the Mercies to come to Tullamore. The whole idea of behind the foundation in Derry was to help the poor of the city. So in 1850, three rooms in the brow of the hill were offered for class instruction. And uh, this school was under the national board and was the first public school the sisters had in Derry. And from inspectors' reports at that time, we read that there was 218 uh, pupils on the first day, and that soon rose to well over 500. And the report says that two-thirds of those children were paupers. Well, the first step was Father Lacey, the curate in Wexford, applied to Baggett Street to Mother Catherine Macaulay herself for a foundation for Wexford. At the time, she couldn't oblige him. But later on in Carlo, at a reception ceremony, they met again and it was decided that the sisters would be sent to Wexford because Mother Macaulay, at, when she was about 20 years of age, she heard all about the insurrection, the rebellion 
of 98 in Wexford and she knew the terrible atrocities and she was most anxious that the children there, the children of those brave men, should be educated. Four sisters left Belfast from St Paul's in Belfast and went to Ashton-under-Lyne in Lancashire. Somehow the community there didn't seem to get on that well with the people. They were stoned and young boys used to jeer them along the way, even tied stone or little strings across the street. They moved from there to Bolton and uh, they were wretchedly poor at the time and they were delighted when the priest from Anna in Belterbet sent word uh, asking a community of sisters to come. Interesting, when they moved to Balnamore in 71, they started a school and some of the poor children later went on to be taught lace making. It was a source of income for the sisters, but it also gave a tradition to the area. They arrived in Swinford from Tewham to witness on their way in just nothing but hovels, hovels all over the place and smoke coming up, twirling up in the air through these hovels. So uh, they got the parish priest got a site and they started there then. So they had very little money, according to the convent accounts at the time, there was oh something under three pounds or something like that they started on. And um, they opened a school and they went on visitation to the workhouse. Now at that time, there was hundreds in the workhouses in Ireland hundreds in swim from the Mayo area because they were so poor. There was a time, you know, when as Sisters of Mercy, we didn't really, we weren't really missionary sisters in the sense that other missionary congregations are. But the cry for Sisters of Mercy began to come up in the present century. And that's why you find sisters from practically every diocese in Ireland, in various parts of the world, particularly in the third world. And their mission, their ministry there is really geared towards making life possible for people living under unjust regimes and to enable people to help themselves. Just before they moved into their convent, the Boer War, in Ireland it's called the Boer War, but in, it's really the Boer War, uh, that uh, started uh, the British and the South Africans over the goldfields. And uh, this, the convent, which was the only um, kind of... Uh, adequate building in this in the town of Mefeking was taken by um, Baden-Powell and uh, the sisters uh, moved into a trench which was built between the convent and the hospital and they served in the war they uh, um, they um, assisted the sick and wounded of both uh, groups they weren't sectarian really of both the British and the Boers and uh, after the war uh, they were decorated uh, we have two uh, Victoria Crosses and uh, seven Victoria Medals. Traditionally, nuns have lived and worked in large institutions, but today things are changing. A little group of sisters had been set up to evaluate the structures of the Sisters of Mercy all over Ireland in the 26 independent dioceses. It so happened that the principal, the lay principal of the primary school here in Salogue Parish in Ballymun saw this in the paper. At that time they were, she was thinking of having a parents room in the school. If I may, I would like to read you just a couple of sentences. She says, for our school we hope to develop a parents room. However, I cannot envisage this without a person 
or persons suitable to man it, to woman it, I think, of course. The objective in having such a room would be personal development and consciousness raising of parents, including all areas of adult education. I think that was visionary. She is a woman of vision and um, just put us in touch with something that possibly was coming up very much in the hearts of many of us, actually. And that really was the beginning of our coming to Ballymun. So your project in Ballymun then was, was a sort of adult education, was it? Project. I'm not particularly fond of that word because it means that you come with a plans and agenda. It means that you have something, to, that I rather have something to give and that I know what's best for the people. Now, that may have been all right when I was teaching in Newry in a secondary school. I did have to plan for a whole year ahead, probably, and I had to get results, but it's quite different here. We can only go ahead along with people. We don't impose. We're not here to impose our ways of thinking and acting. We're not here to improve things. We're not here to dispense either material things or information or whatever, um, or to advise. But we are here to be with people, to find ways through their pain and their poverty and their, the number of times they're let down by a system which insists on putting them on the fringes of society, economically, culturally, socially, and even physically, as, as you can see. We're welcomed by all the people, no matter where we go. There are great opportunities for life stories in the bus queue, waiting, uh, shopping over in the shopping centre and waiting in the queue there. There are wonderful opportunities in the groups that we have just to listen to people, which would be unheard of in the olden days when you went out and kept your eyes cast down and you weren't even allowed to speak to anybody, you know. So it's a quite a big change in that, and it's interesting. One day I was coming, shortly after I came, I was coming back from the shopping centre and I was laden down with plastic bags from crazy prices with... So we see we take the um, the housekeeping uh, intern each week, and I met this little girl. Now the children here are absolutely beautiful in every way, and um, she she was about four or five. And they they love you. They put their arms around you, and they love you to either lift them up or put your arms around them. But I had these plastic bags, and uh, she looked up at me and she was pulling at me. And I said, I can't lift you up now. I said. And she just looked up at me wistfully and said, but you can bend down and give me a kiss. I thought that was absolutely beautiful. And it said to me exactly what I needed to be doing here. I need to be with people where they are along the journey of life. I needed to give them love. I needed to love them and I needed to be loved by them because that was what I needed as well. So I think that that really, for me, both from my point of view and from the or anybody else's point of view, that really encapsulates for me what my mission is here. Catherine Macaulay was in education ever before she became a Sister of Mercy or set up the order because she saw education as the means of enabling the poor to make a life of their own.
she and her com- and a companion went to France in 1825, which was six years before the establishment of the order, to study the best methods of education. You'll find Mercy Sisters in practically every town in the country and in a school, if they're there at all, they're in a school. One of the first things they always did in arriving in a place was to start teaching, to set up a classroom, even if there's only one room. But, of course, now they would have branched out into uh, non-school-based education, adult education, parish involvement as well. And, of course, one of the things about the Mercies from the beginning was visitation. I would say visitation uh, of the old days may be linked into what today we would call homeschool liaison work, where the Sisters of Mercy visited the homes very much as part of their normal involvement in a parish, and therefore they knew the children, they knew their parents, they knew what was required, they made that link. First of all, the fact that their parents, their parents are welcome within the school. We have a parents' room in the school and the parents are welcome to come in there, to come in just to make for a chat, for a cup of tea, to take part in a course. And it means a lot to the children that their parents are also welcome within the school and they actually talk about Mammy or Daddy going back to school or having school today. So they see the the parent as being a friend of the teacher or as being a friend of the coordinator and that gives them great confidence and helps them in their work as well. As local coordinators our work is very much about enabling people and everywhere that Catherine went she really was about enabling people, empowering people to help themselves. She did recognise immediate needs, which, you know, where help was urgently needed. But in the long run, what she was about was enabling people to take responsibility for their own lives. You know the saying about giving a person a fish rather than helping them to, teaching them to fish for themselves. Um, it's that really. It's about helping people Developing leadership skills. Uh, It's about helping people in the enrichment of their own lives within family and in the local community. That whole community dimension is a very important aspect of our work. And visitation is a key part of our work. And of course, as a Mercy Sister, that is particularly meaningful for me. Because Catherine, through visitation, actually saw what the needs were and then responded to those needs. Our involvement today is different, as I see it, and it has to be different, because we're fewer on the ground, and I see that as a marvellous opportunity, because it has forced us in a way that probably nothing else would have done to look at how we were involved in, in education. I think today our principal role is as trustees of education. Now, not in the legal sense that we own the schools and therefore we are trustees in a legal sense, but I think we have a moral trust. We have a responsibility to maintain the values which first imbued those schools and to hand them on and to enable others to take over from us and to carry on and to nurture and maintain the things for which these schools stand. Well, there's a group that we call ourselves Mercy West where ten different groups of Mercy's Mercy trustees came together and out of commitment to their role of trustees put in place what you might call an in-service programme for their schools. Now in this group there are 43 second level schools and 61 
primary schools. And we've been in position for over a year now and it has involved in-service for boards, staffs and sometimes where, where we've been able to get around to it, uh, parent associations as well. And what we're trying to do is to be proactive as trustees to prepare people for change. I think we would be on the side of those who are perhaps less well uh, served by our health service. And um, they would be almost what you could term, I suppose, the marginalised in terms of either their age, their frailty, their chronic illness, um, the fact that they are socially deprived and not able to ac access the service. Well, your numbers are going down. How does that affect the role of sisters in hospitals? We're looking at it in ways that we can use the skills of sisters at different levels. We have provided people with skills in pastoral care and that moves them around the place so they're actually covering a much wider area and they can detect um, the people within the system who are vulnerable and perhaps give them the attention without having to have the responsibility of a ward or a department uh, because that, that addresses a whole big area that perhaps a very busy ward sister may not in, in a vast technological system may not be able to address uh, so easily and that's the psychological and the spiritual and even to a small extent the, the social aspect while the curative is being done. And do you think that by uniting into one Mercy congregation your work will become more effective? I do and I think that perhaps in a united way we might be able to tackle problems that occur within the health service as a much stronger organisation because we see ourselves as being the voice for the voiceless people who are not being well served and if you get the Mercy Order as you know is, is nicely placed all the sisters throughout Ireland north and south, south of the border therefore if we unite our efforts together and put our problems uh, as we see them, I don't mean our personal problems I mean the problems of those who are unable to state them for themselves and uh, lobby at levels that they wouldn't have access to I think as a strong, big, rather representative body, we might be able to do something for uh, the more vulnerable in our society. And that's where I'd see we would score as a big congregation. I think our, our involvement with, with, with HIV problems and AIDS now has to do with actually being with the people who are affected by HIV and, and AIDS. And I think it, it has been about walking the journey with them um, we now know that, for example, in, in Ireland, about about 400 people have had have had AIDS, and about half of that number have died. So, our work here has been very much has had very much to do with with bereavement and grief. Um, it has had to do with again accessing services. It has had to do with um, setting up um, voluntary groups who uh, befriend those affected by HIV and AIDS and also to uh, explore ways of preventing not only the transmission of the virus, but to explore ways of receiving those who are affected in some way by HIV into the community in, in, in a welcoming, um, uh, compassionate way.
interestingly, we have been involved in, in the HIV and AIDS field since uh, the middle uh, middle of the 1980s, uh, and even earlier than that. And um, there is now a, a worldwide mercy network uh, for people who are involved in, in the whole field of HIV and AIDS. My work is mainly uh, involved in an in advisory capacity and in a training capacity. From the point of view of advice, I advise in the area of small business development, cottage industries, helping people to identify um, resources within their own farms, perhaps, and with the change in agriculture, I think this is quite significant, that traditionally um, production agriculture was the main area that people depended on. Today we have to look at, because of cap and quotas, we have to look at alternative ways of using land and farm buildings, and also looking at the skills of the people within their homes. Uh, like the production of natural foods like cheese, butter, home baking, taking us back to to the natural, in fact taking us back to the type of income generating activities that our grandmothers used as pen money in the olden times. I'm acutely aware that uh, if Catherine McCauley were around today she would be working with families, with women in particular, and I think it would be in the area of empowerment I think she would recognise, as we are trying to recognise, that um, women are, you know, they're a key resource in any community. And um, in, in most of my experience to date, I suppose, has taught me that where community development is really thriving and really working on the ground, that in, in, in the main, you know, with men also, but women seem to have the stick-headedness, they, they seem to have the interest and the commitment to stay with community development issues. I'm on the board of the Working Party of uh, the United Nations and I'm also a member of a consultant on a training team and that has taken me into countries like Slovenia, which was formerly Yugoslavia, Hungary and Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic. I suppose there I work mainly on a team trying to train trainers and mainly women, again, are people on our training courses. I think their conditioning has been very, very strong and their conditioning has really, I suppose, rendered them to be less than sure of themselves. They have low self-esteem, really. Uh, Their lack of confidence and belief in self and they're paralysed by fear that this newfound freedom could, in fact, be removed from them again. And it's in this area in particular that we have to work very, very much to give them a sense of their own creativity, a sense of their own importance, their own self-worth. Catherine McCauley was a woman who was totally out of step with her time. And I think the challenge for religious mercies around the country today is to be out of step with our time. And the way that the expression that that would take would be at three different levels. First of all, I believe we're called to be at the edge of society to critique it, to look at the social reality, to analyse it, to be able to express the pain and the hurt of people. The second level, we're asked to be compassionate people with and for the poor at the ground level. And then the third level is we're asked to challenge the status quo from the experience we've had with people on the ground, we're in a strong position then to challenge what's unjust in society. So those are the three levels that form the vision of Catherine McCauley that did form her vision in her day and is equally relevant today, if not more so.
The symbol of our work in St Bridget's where I work is a wheel and we always leave an open spoke and that for us symbolises our openness to change and it reminds us too that what was relevant yesterday may not necessarily be relevant today. So we're very aware that we must constantly reflect on what's happening around us. And for example, we experienced a number of travellers who were extremely disadvantaged. They hadn't their basic rights, an eight-year-old weighed two stone. So obviously their needs were immediate, they couldn't wait until tomorrow. So we responded at the grassroots level by providing um, day-to-day services like preschool, um, lunches and a youth club for the travellers. At the same time, we approached the authorities and campaigned to have a service site, have educational facilities and inadequate health care for them. Now, today in Waterford, we have all of those. I think a lot of mercies around the country are involved at the compassionate solidarity level, you know, response to the day-to-day needs of people. There are some justice uh, initiatives around the country as well by Mercy Sisters, but I must say that my dream for Mercy Ireland, the way forward, is that perhaps we'll get greater balance between those three dimensions. We've been very strong on the compassionate level, but not so strong on challenging the status quo. There's a fear too about taking the leap into justice work because it's a very difficult work. The status quo is very, very entrenched in Ireland and I think somewhere I read that Ireland is the most class divided society in Europe. And to break into that system is very, very difficult. I myself have been marginalised when I've challenged the status quo and it's only my deep conviction that this is my call as a Mercy Sister today that keeps me going. It is a very lonely path. But knowing that there are others in the work with me, it sustains me and keeps me going, keeps me motivated. And also, going back to the scriptures, it's rooted in justice. My vision for the future would be that the mercies could be identified quite clearly, unequivocally, as standing with and for the poor. That would imply that they would be open to challenging the systems that are experienced by people presently as being oppressive. People speaking out is what's called for and that's the only credibility that we can rely on for the future. Being in there with and for the poor, that is our mission. As you know, the Mercies of Northern Ireland would be involved in all kinds of ministries as they are all over the country, like education, healthcare, family ministry, social work, etc., etc. Now, um, in Northern Ireland, I think having lived there for over 20 years and been part of a situation there that has been uh, fairly troubled with uh, violence and so on and injustice, there is a certain kind of presence that Mercy Sisters are called to live out of. Um, In a way, you're called to be very compassionate, if you can be, in situations of great pain and great suffering. And this pain and suffering affects everybody there in some in some form, but you know that you're that you're challenged to confront the question of death in a way that you maybe wouldn't be in another situation, and you have to find uh, a faith story, you know, to live out of in some sense to carry the suffering and the pain. The other thing I think about Northern Ireland is that you're you're also challenged to respect difference, and 
it's very hard sometimes to accommodate things that are very different from how you see them. In coming together next week to merge the 27 individual congregations into one mercy union, is the order reversing Catherine Macaulay's vision of small independent units? It might appear that we are centralising and that might appear that that's against what Catherine set out to do. But when we think that when we were founded in the 19th century, um, it, it was a different world than today and the sisters were very locally based, as they will continue to be, but they drew what they needed from the local base. And that was true of all of the foundations that Catherine made. What we're doing now is not centralising, but connecting all of our communities right throughout the 26 dioceses in Ireland and South Africa, reconnecting in the way Catherine maintained a relationship with them. And there will be maximum the independence in each of the sections of the congregation and the connection will simply be maintaining that connection for life, for unity and rather in the light of today's emphasis on the importance of connectedness. Small is beautiful but not small and isolated. Well, Sister St John, you've come from South Africa and you're going to maintain a connection now with Mercy Union in Ireland. You would, anybody would admit that in the last 30 years or so there's been a tremendous kind of global vision of, of life and of reality. And uh, we've, you know, realised that the sisters in Ireland were uh, following this path of, of union and uh, we felt that um, it would be to our benefit and we hoped also that we might have uh, some input into such a union. Sister Bonaventure, you've been part of the organising committee actually setting up the basis for Mercy Union in Ireland. Has it been difficult drawing together the 27 different communities? Not at this stage. <laughs> uh, we were very, very fortunate in the line of approach you know, that um, we designed in the sense that there was maximum participation. And it was lovely to see through the two years the growing bondedness of the sisters who were part of the committees. I can't say offhand how many committees were in place, but I think it'll put you in the picture if we say that we had more than 500 sisters on committees. And on each committee, there would have been a representative from each of the congregations. So that every 26 or 27, when that was possible, that met, uh, grew into a greater relationship among themselves. So in a sense, you, you've come together on the ground through the work. You're coming yes. together as, as yes. a union. Now. right. And if I had one desire for the future, I think it would be for faithfulness to that process of consultation with everybody. Picking up on Catherine Macaulay herself and her response to needs, in the way she went about it, she was quite revolutionary. I mean, she certainly was not a typical woman of her age. Is there a sense in which, looking to the future, you as Mercy Sisters are being called on to be just as countercultural and, in a sense, to maybe step on toes that might not wish to be stepped on? I'd nearly say I hope so because we're at the point where um, we talk about what's happening in July as the rebirth and therefore if we really get back to the spirit of the foundress we're going to have to walk in her shoes in the early days I'm sure it was mentioned already that the early sisters were talked about as the walking sisters because it was so foreign you know so it mightn't be that our walking would be noticeable but um, wherever we are inserted, 
I think we would hope to make a difference and that this would be done in a collaborative way. If there was one thing that um, could describe her, it was her sensitivity to the dignity of people and particularly people whom society marginalised or shoved to the edge. But Catherine's idea was that we were very much with people and in fact she was the first religious, first woman religious to succeed in bypassing the enclosure rule in Rome at the time which was common for all women's congregations so the mercies were the first and if we're going to be true to that tradition Mm. it isn't behind walls and in convents we need to be but true to our tradition actually close to people's lives so in today's society where people are levelled if you like and are moved uh, into categories it is a counterculture call for us to again bring that out, the basic dignity of each person and particularly those who are working under stress. So what of the future? I just would hope that we can have her courage and the courage of the people who who were associated with her and uh, to get ahead and do it without, you know, not not to be over kind of uh, cautious or just go ahead and do the things that, uh, that are needing to be done. And uh, I feel there are a tremendous amount of people backing us and with us so that we're not alone and uh, whether it's the person in need or the person who, who, who will attend to the need, we're all together, I feel. Um, the vision of the diver at the end of a diving board is what comes to me. Uh, being poised for this great plunge. But we've no way of knowing what the waters are going to be like. There's uh, no real chartered course we can look back to history and be um, confident, you know, of the support of the spirit and the cooperation of so many people. Uh, it's an adventure, an adventure in faith. It will have all sorts of characteristics and all sorts of particular project, if you like, dimensions to it. But it is Catherine's thing. All I ever wanted was to serve God and his poor ones. And that's worth working for and it's worth giving oneself to, and it's worth even taking the risk that we mightn't do it all that great, but God will be faithful.